0: This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the niche details of modern warfare and underreported conflict with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to Professor Jacob Mundy. And we're going to be speaking to him about the resurgence of conflict in the autonomous regions of Western Sahara. You might not have heard of this, but a long frozen war reignited again in November between Western Sahara separatists of the Polisario Front and the government of Morocco. It's very interesting. If you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash popularfront. Before we go into the kind of history and why the Polisario front have been fighting and the situation with Morocco and everything, um, maybe just tell us about the recent developments where Trump has come out and spoken about Morocco and they've they've acknowledged Israel. And, like, what was that all about? What happened there?
1: Well, yeah, so an announcement was made late last week that... Uh, Morocco would normalize uh, relations with Israel, although Morocco already kind of had more advanced relations than, than some of its neighbors anyway. But um, And it appears to be a quid pro quo that the United States would recognize Moroccan sovereignty over the disputed territory of Western Sahara, and the Moroccans are sort of denying that it was a quid pro quo, but it's, it's fairly clear. That, and there, there was reporting on this in the, the months leading up to this for almost a year that uh, Morocco was kind of shopping around this idea that, you know, if the U.S. would recognize uh, its control over Western Sahara, it would, it would uh, you know, do the, the normalization thing with Israel.
0: Right. And what is the situation with Western Sahara and the Polisario front and all the history there? Maybe you can kind of go into the, the beginning of the conflict. Why did this all start however many years ago it was, decades ago now?
1: The Polisario front, which is the... Uh, you know the leading independence movement i mean really kind of the only independence movement in in western sahara the conflict you know one level dates back to 1975 when spain was about to uh basically hand the territory independence spain had originally colonized western sahara in 1885 as a part of the whole scramble for africa when european countries were gobbling up you know the last territory that were available uh, in North Africa, you have the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and all of that. So uh, this, some of this had to do with discoveries of rich phosphate deposits there. Uh, there was an effort to kind of hold on to the the colony of Western Sahara by rebranding it a province of Spain. So it would be like an overseas province like the Canary Islands. Uh, but the UN uh, had recognized Western Sahara as a non-self-governing territory in the 1960s and 1963, really, And there was increasing pressure on Spain to to get out of Western Sahara because it was just becoming more and more absurd that there was this, you know, Colorado or Great Britain-sized chunk of West Africa that was still under foreign domination. Spain finally announced in 1974 they were going to hold a referendum on independence. By that time, they had been uh, under pressure from Polisario, which uh, they had launched their military campaign to liberate Western Sahara in 1973, having received some backing from, initially, uh, from Libya, though Algeria would later become their most important sponsor. So, yeah, in 1975, things um, come to this kind of explosive point around, um, you know, Spain is going to leave the territory, is going to, you know, orchestrate a vote on independence, and really just, you know, they already had plans to give the territory to Paul's nationalist movement. Uh, Morocco, which had laid claim to large chunks of northwest Africa, you know, not just like Western Sahara, but like Western Algeria and Northern Mali, all of Mauritania, uh, Morocco was still pursuing its territorial claim uh, quite aggressively uh, in international fora, and they had requested an opinion from the inter- International Court of Justice. That opinion came out mid October 1975, and it said um, there's really nothing there. There's there's no Moroccan. You know, historical claim that has any validity uh, in Western Sahara. In, in the face of that, Morocco then threatened uh, to march three hundred fifty thousand Moroccan civilians into the Spanish-held uh, colony until Spain relented. And there was a, there was a military threat behind this that you know Morocco said you know we're going to send these peaceful marchers down, but if you try to to keep them from taking the territory, then we're going to use our military force. And Morocco had already for months been amassing troops at its southern border. So Spain, it, it was kind of a weird coincidence of different things. Um, as soon as Morocco announces that, you know, it's going to aggressively take Western Sahara, uh, uh, the dictator Franco <laughs> collapses uh, at the at the meeting where this is being discussed, uh, and the Spanish government is in total uh, crisis. But behind the scenes, the United States had gotten word that Morocco was going to invade Western Sahara, uh, that the decision had been made by King Hassan of Morocco, and that, um, that one way or another, this was going to happen. Uh, officially, the U.S. you know pushed for like some kind of you know negotiated peaceful uh, solution to the dispute, but behind the scenes, they really did want the King of Morocco to be able to get Western Sahara because it would uh, benefit what was a very strong uh, Cold War ally of the United States, France, and Britain. So they re- they really saw, and this was really true that. Uh, regaining or you know annexing Western Sahara would help stabilize the Moroccan regime, which at the time was a very unstable regime. The, the king had barely survived several coup attempts that um, sought to replace him and install a kind of military republic or or something of that sort. So the the October, November uh, months where East Timor also gets taken over by Indonesia. But so this is the this is the moment where the war really breaks out uh, between Polisario and Morocco. And from then onward uh, for 16 years, you have uh, open warfare between Polisario and Morocco. Uh, Polisario does quite well in terms of guerrilla warfare during the early years of the war. Mauritania, which had been a kind of junior partner of Morocco's in the invasion effort, is quickly kicked out. Algerian support. Is increasing, including um, some some weaponry that proves quite useful, uh, like surface-to-air missiles and things like that. Morocco is able to turn the tide in the war by building a series of barriers in the in the desert. So these are basically just walls that are dug out of the sand, and they're stuffed full of landmines. And there's a uh, like a small base, I think, almost like every 15 kilometers or so uh, to to keep an eye on things and the you know sophisticated surveillance equipment things like that so the advantage that pulsario had in terms of freedom of movement as a guerrilla organization is gradually restricted by this wall and by the end of the war in the late 1980s you have what is you know really kind of going what's going on right now in terms of military situation that pulsario is attacking the the berm the walls uh but they're not able to really kind of gain and and, and hold territory so uh by the end into the war in the 1980s, it was, you know, the, Morocco was being harassed, uh, but they certainly weren't going to, to lose the territory uh, to Polisario. Uh, and meanwhile, the civilian populations are totally kind of outside of where the fighting is taking place. You have, you know, 40% of the population are refugees in Algeria since 1976, and then the rest are living under Moroccan occupation. The United Nations shows up, in the mid-1980s to take over the peace effort uh, from the Organization of African Unity. And the OAU, which today we call the African Union, uh, had developed this plan that was uh, pretty straightforward. It was a ceasefire, uh, return of refugees, and a vote on independence. And that's what would be necessary to properly decolonize Western Sahara under international law. That is, you know, that the, the population would at least get to choose between joining with Morocco or independence independence has to be some some part of the, the solution, whether it's presented as an option or just granted outright. So Morocco and Pulsario basically agreed to this framework through the UN. Ceasefire is arranged several months after the Security Council creates the UN mission for the referendum in Western Sahara. And then from then onwards, you kind of just have a, a peace process that just really kind of slowly deteriorates and unravels over the, the 30 years that followed. First, there was you know this effort to hold referendum but then it became clear uh, in the wake of the disastrous referendum in east timor 1999 that security council wasn't really comfortable with the idea that you know wh- what are we going to do if morocco doesn't win the vote you know are we going to you know sanction morocco to get them to leave the territory and that was almost unthinkable so there's a switch around 2000 and this coincides with the, the new king coming to power that same year well m- mid 1999 really and uh what the security council mandated was that the two parties had to, uh, that is, you know, Polsari and Morocco had to negotiate basically uh, what would be uh, an agreement that they were both be willing to commit to. Uh, Cause the, the original referendum idea, uh, the issue there was like, you know, is Morocco even going to, you know, commit uh, to recognizing a vote on independence? And, and really since then Morocco has often uh said repeatedly that independence is no longer on the table anyway uh, so what needs to be negotiated is pulsario uh, rejects uh and so you know from 2000 to the present uh the u.n peace process has you know chewed through four uh personal envoys of the secretary general the first was was james baker who resigned you know out of frustration in 2004 he was replaced by a sequence of others who didn't certainly didn't have his political cachet, and so the you know the peace process just seems to be kind of um, you know this whimsical pursuit of a, a self-enforcing, self-implementing uh, peace plan, uh, because the Security Council really doesn't want to you know uh, do the heavy lifting necessary uh, to resolve this conflict, you know, especially when it comes to putting pressure on Morocco. So for years, frustrations have been building up. Uh, particularly Morocco's economic exploitation of Western Sahara, especially the fishing and the phosphates. And then recently, Morocco tried to improve the road that connects the occupied Western Sahara with Mauritania, which would allow even more goods and trade uh, to go through. And this road is really the only paved road that you can think of connecting West Africa to Europe. You know, all other routes through the Sahara right now are just too dangerous and uh, don't have that kind of good infrastructure backing them. So it pulled a red line at this uh, infrastructural project uh, of Morocco, and Morocco kept pushing forward with it. And then things just kind of exploded in October when uh, Morocco uh, said that it would violently remove some protesters, built and built and built. This also coincided with the annual uh, Security Council resolution on Western Sahara. And this council didn't really do anything uh, to, to confront these rising tensions. And so when Morocco removed the protesters in total violation of the ceasefire it, you know them being on polisario's side of the armistice line within a five kilometer buffer strip that you know is a no-go zone for either side's military that uh, polisario uh, act, basically acted on their red line that they had drawn so if you know if morocco pushes into our sovereign territory we're going to resume armed conflict and that's exactly what they did so that's where we were in mid-November uh, and then last week we got this really stunning uh, proclamation from President Trump
0: yeah yeah we'll talk about the current fighting in a minute but um, I just want to go back to Western Sahara Morocco w- what is the difference here is this just a land dispute or are they like two completely different cultures I honestly don't know that much about the situation is it like you know, the the Western the people in Western Sahara, they're like com- kind of completely different culturally, they're separatists, or is it just like they want their bit of land and Morocco want theirs? What's, what is the difference there?
1: Yeah, I mean, if uh, if you think about societies emerging in relationship to their culture that is firmly rooted in, you know, pastoralism in the desert, like the, the Tuaregs or other sorts of Saharan peoples, uh, the... Uh, Western Saharans, if you were, you know, if you're going to say who are they closest to in terms of ethnicity, cultural identity, uh, it's Mauritanians, you know, it's, right. it's not Moroccans at all. And that, um, you know, familial ties, language, um, you know, socio-environmental backgrounds, I mean, Mauritania and Western Sahara are much more alike uh, in that respect. That Morocco um, is, uh, in one part, In the north, you have um, traditions of, you know, planned agriculture. And in the mountains, you have um, different kinds of um, historical backgrounds going on there. So, yeah, the Sahrawis are definitely rooted in uh, nomadic uh, living, uh, even even though uh, with the intensification of Spanish colonization in the 50s, 60s, Early nineteen seventies, there was a very rapid urbanization of the population um, within the the growing cities that that Spain was making. But yeah, the um, Sahrawis have a very distinct dialect of Arabic from from Moroccan Arabic. Uh, although, in let's say uh, the north of Western Sahara and the south of Morocco, you do have tribal overlap, and and Morocco often uses that overlap as a kind of wedge to to make these arguments that you know that well we have we have Sahara in, in southern Morocco so and they they have ties to the people of Western Sahara so therefore the people of Western Sahara are Moroccan um, but yeah i know there there is an element uh, which i think this is very much about land um, mm. not just for the people of Western Sahara but um, for Moroccans that the um, you know the the regaining of Western Sahara as the Moroccans see it is, you know, kind of a part of the the national identity at this point. You know, not only is, you know, a huge part of what makes the the monarchy legitimate um, to a certain extent, that they've, you know, in the face of all this international pressure, they took Western Sahara and they've held on to it. Uh, But just, you know, again, the idea that Morocco before colonialism was much larger than it was after colonialism. And so there is also a feeling within Moroccans that this is a kind of justice for the the ways in which uh, French and Spanish imperialism dismembered the, the great, the great Moroccan empire that existed before the, the 1800s or 1900s.
0: Right. Um, and what what is it like in the areas that the Polisario control? Because when you say Western Sahara, a lot of people are just going to think, oh, desert, like as if they're just, you know, hanging out in the desert. Obviously, I know it's not that. What is it actually like uh, in the areas that they control in the Western Sahara? And what kind of autonomy do they have? Are they completely autonomous from Morocco or do they do dealings with them or what?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, with that, um, Morocco's defensive wall that was built during the 1980s, uh, it's more or less hermeneutically seals uh, the pulsario-controlled Western Sahara, which is maybe, you know, at most uh, a fifth or a fourth of Western Sahara's total territory, with the, the rest being under Moroccan control. Uh, so the pulsario, uh, what they call the liberated areas or the, the parts of the territory that are under, you know, their, what they view as their sovereignty, there, there's really not a lot going on. In those areas, there are scattered few settlements or buildings, things of that sort, often that were created very late in Spanish colonialism and, and things of that sort. Uh, the, so, the, the Sahrawis, especially the those who uh, are under Polisario control, tend to live in these refugee camps that have been created outside of the Algerian city of Tindouf. So, at this point, there are basically five of these camps, there's a hundred. Population count of about 174,000 of them, uh, and they live more or less independently from Algeria. They kind of have their own autonomous space that they've carved out where they've created their own, you know, governing institutions and, you know, what little economic activity there is, uh, aid distribution, that sort of thing. So you can go to these refugee camps and, um, and, you know, hang out, get to know the people and things like that uh, as a, as a guest of Polisario within, uh, you know, within, you know, Algerian territory. But, um, yeah, there's not, you know, the only, the only real relations you have between, let's say like Pulsario and Morocco tend to happen at the, the diplomatic level. Um, there is, um, of course, a lot of, um, let's say <laughs> other kinds of economic activity, activities that happen in the Sahara desert. So there is to a certain extent, some leakage, you might call it, um, of uh, goods and people across this military barrier depending on you know who you pay off and 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 Mm. that sort of thing and it sometimes gets reported on in the um you know the un reports and and things of that sort but with all of the landmines and things like that uh, migrants tend to try to go you know obviously through libya uh since it's you know wide open at that at this point, um, or or up through Algeria if they can make it, and that sort of thing. But, um, but yeah. So the the western sort of, let's say, part of the, the Sahara Desert, uh, because of this, you know, intensive, you know, mining that Morocco did in the territory, just makes it really dangerous, even for basic nomads, because uh, winds can often shift where mines are, and it's they it can sometimes be hard uh, to track. Um, and so we, you know, there's always an accident or two, you know, every year where, you know, a camel steps on a landmine or uh, someone drives over things of that sort. right? So that the, the intensive military uh, mil, uh, militarization of Western Sahara uh, does, does put some limits on the kinds of stuff that, that happen there versus what, what you see in the, the more open spaces of the Sahara and, you know, Mali, Niger, Chad, things like
0: that. If you can just tell me a little bit about the Polisario front, I understand they're the main militant group there, like, you know, who arms them? What kind of ideology do they have? They seem to be pretty well equipped from some of the videos I've seen. Like I'm quite interested in them. Um, Maybe tell us a bit about them.
1: Yeah. So the uh, Polisario is formed in 19. 73 uh from some activists who'd been working together uh, mainly younger sahrawis who uh, ironically had gone uh to study uh on university campuses in morocco and so you know being the the milieu of the early 1970s you know they encountered all the the radical ideas and notions and and things of that sort um as well as the you know at, at that point um the you know movement to liberate Africa was you know in full swing, as well as you know new ideas about third world third worldism third world liberation things things of that sort and that seems to be sort of the the original ideological thrust of Polisario it was a kind of mix of um, a bit of leftism but they were never embraced uh, by the Soviet Union uh, who maintained much closer relations uh, with Morocco even though Algeria and the Soviet Union also had good relations, uh, especially in terms of military arms and things of that sort, which we'll we'll get to your your question a little bit later. Yeah, so Pulsario starts out by, you know, with these, uh, I guess you could say radicalized, but I'm not sure I'd say radicalized, but just these activists who uh, decide that they're going to launch their own nationalist struggle, uh, you know, one that, you know, uh, for them, it was, you know, resonant with all the other struggles in the area, you know, from Algeria to... Uh, you name it, uh, South Africa. So uh, the thing, though, is that uh, in in order to build a movement, they quickly learned, I think, that they had to uh, take a much more uh, – an approach that wasn't ideologically rigid but could accommodate different kinds of tendencies and things of that sort. So as long as you were pro-independence, that was fine, you know, and that um, you could accommodate older uh, Sahrawis who had military experience – uh, perhaps with the Spanish territorial police, things of that sort. The current president of Polsario is one of those types uh, who had military training uh, from Spain. And so uh, they, when Polsario is, is founded, when they launched their war against Spain, they do have this very uh, leftist guerrilla sort of veneer. Uh, but they've uh, actually had... Uh, you know, very interesting relations uh, around the world with conservative regimes, uh, with Castro, you know, you name it, that sort of thing. Um, and it, it shows that they are, you know, are very ideologically kind of flexible. And um, mm. that uh, one of their biggest supporters in the U.S. Congress right now is uh, James Inhofe, who, you know, couldn't be more right wing, mm. um, you know, where but they've also been supported by figures like, you know, Senator Kennedy. Um, and so... As Polisario has evolved uh, over time, they, you know, they first of all had to create a kind of state in exile that once Morocco invaded and, and Spain quit the territory, Polisario decided to pursue a strategy of trying to seek recognition as a, an independent uh, or you know, I guess a, a state, albeit one that's occupied by, by Morocco. So the Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic was created in 1976 uh, and it's, it's very closely related with Polisario Oh, right now. So it's, it's hard to say, you know, is Polsario a political party or is it, you know, what is it? But I, th- I tend to think of it as a national front that uh, tends to, as, at the, over time, it's gotten bigger in terms of the, um, who's allowed to be in the tent and they've had to accommodate different kinds of, you know, from Islamist type tendencies all the way to, you know, uh, Hugo Chavez type tendencies. And that as Polsario has matured, um, you know, originally there were sort of a, this program of like anti-tribalism and that, you know, people would only use their first names because family names would, were were too tied to tribalism and all that stuff is kind of, it's kind of like gone away. And and that as Polisario has gotten older, they've also embraced, you know, certain aspects of uh, Sahrawi culture and tradition in the 1990s, they even created uh, a second sort of chamber within their state of exile, which is a council of like tribal elders. And so, um, so, Polisari has evolved over time, and it, it's. Uh, but again, it, it's intimately connected to this uh, the state building project that they also have, the Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic. Now, Algeria has definitely had a lot of influence on them. I mean, they, they borrowed ideas from from you know lots of different kinds of um, nationalist struggles, uh, Egypt under Nasser, uh, Libya under Gaddafi, but Algeria once Algeria kind of like adopts Polisario as like, you know, a, a cause that they're, they're going to support and largely largely because Algeria was excluded from the process by which Spain left Western Sahara and Morocco gained it. So Algeria was, was utterly infuriated by all of this uh, Western machinations happening behind its back. And uh, Algeria decides that, you know, it's going to support Polisario's diplomatic activities around the world. Uh, it's also going to support them militarily now in the in the the war in the seventies and eighties uh Polisario you know quickly learned that tanks and you know heavy armor was it wasn't going to really work out for them so you know the the land rover with with no windows so there's no you know there's no glare uh was you know their chief sort of conveyance light arms things of that sort. The stuff that we've seen recently uh, these artilleries and, and missiles. Things of that sort. We, uh, It's difficult to say, but we assume that most of that is probably just some sort of excess defense articles gifted to them by Algeria um, that in terms of like their most sophisticated um, weaponry, as I mentioned earlier, probably is, I'm speculating here a bit, but I think they, I assume they still do have some surface to air Capability, like what they used in um, one, you know, really important battle during the war in the 1980s, but it, one wonders why there hasn't been a military response by Morocco since since mid November. And you know, Morocco could be doing a kind of rope-a-dope strategy in terms of just taking the hits um, and letting Pulsario use up whatever ammunition it has, and then kind of testing whether or not Algeria is actually going to be there for them. When they need more artillery pieces and things like that or the other option is that morocco is afraid to use its air power in western sahara uh, because of uh, the surfaced air missile capability that Polisario has you know so you know a, a very relatively cheap missile could could you know cause quite some damage to morocco's very expensive air force
0: mm. um and let's talk about the current conflict so it kicked off in november um, how serious was that? Like, what actually happened? I saw a few um, youth were kicking off um, in areas and then there was, you know, people literally fighting with uh, small arms on the front line there. What actually happened? Like, how, how serious was it all?
1: So you had uh, this this border point that I was, I was talking about where Morocco was trying to, uh, since 2017, has been trying to pave the road there in violation of the ceasefire and things like that. And Polisario has tried protesting, uh, deploying troops in the area, later what they called police, and then more recently these civilian demonstrators. Uh, Morocco violently removed these demonstrators uh, from the area, and that's exactly the point at which Polisario decided to resume its armed struggle. Uh, What we've seen, or at least what has been reported, is just bombardments that Polisario is using artillery and missiles to attack these fixed Moroccan positions uh, along the, the defensive wall. And the reporting is uh, it's very sketchy. We don't know Morocco's casualties. There are two uh, that I know have been confirmed uh, through sources in the UN mission, but one would think that according to Polisario's daily press releases that they would have actually had more casualties. We've also seen where Sahrawis uh, are reporting that on Facebook groups for, let's say, Moroccan military families and stuff like that, uh, they've been told, you know, don't say anything if you've lost a loved one in the, you know, in the Western Sahara and things like that. So Morocco seems to be um, doing all it can to like keep information from leaking out about what's actually happening. On the ground, and because the the fronts that we're talking about, where the fighting is taking place, are so far from any like civilian areas um, that we really just we don't know what's going on. So it looks as if uh, Paul Sario is just pounding Moroccan positions uh, with our mainly with artillery day after day. Morocco hasn't responded in any uh, forceful way. I mean, Morocco really hasn't even <laughs> acknowledged that that this is happening. And uh we don't know if uh Polisar is trying other tactics like night raids, which was one of their sort of one of their favorite techniques in the, the late nineteen eighties would be to sneak across the, the wall, uh to dig up a bunch of landmines, uh put them somewhere else where they would be run over by a Moroccan military vehicle and then sneak back. That that sort of thing. But yeah, I mean it does raise questions about whether or not uh polisario can actually escalate uh, beyond this kind of just you know we're we're just going to make life miserable for the moroccans who have to man these bases on the front line but uh in terms of uh taking you know moroccan positions holding those moroccan positions pushing pushing into the occupied western sahara not it's not clear that polisario has that capability or if they're holding back for some reason
0: Right, and comparatively for the region, from what I understand, Morocco's military are like pretty well equipped, they're pretty tough, you know, um, surely if they wanted to, they could just kind of move in, or is it not that simple?
1: Yeah, I mean, if Pulsario, let's say, crossed the the wall and tried to hold territory, uh, this this is what they learned in the, the 70s and 80s, that uh, when they kept moving, they were quite effective as a guerrilla army, but when they tried to hold land they would often lose it because then morocco can use heavy armor air force things like that and so um so it's difficult for polisario to um you know shift the the fronts in this this battle now the question also becomes yeah what if morocco decided that it wanted to push forward into polisario held territory you know what little there is of it, uh, and uh, there's some there's some issues there. One is whether or not it would trigger uh, an Algerian uh, counter response, especially because uh, you you're getting so close to Algerian uh, territory that you know it's, it ends up being like you know one of these like uh, Turkish Syria border things where the jets <laughs> the jets can't not <laughs> fly over the other the other country's territory Mm -hmm. right just to just to do basic sort of maneuvers and things like that so the leaving leaving a little bit of land um that is technically under pulsar control might might be strategically in morocco's interest to avoid this kind of uh hot pursuit problem that they faced in the 70s and 80s um and that also includes mauritania but mauritania is a, a very weak state with not a lot of military capacity to defend itself from you know uh, Moroccan incursion, not not that they would necessarily do that anyway, but yeah, so on paper, yeah, Morocco has quite quite an impressive uh, array of uh, military capacities. They recently just upgraded all of, uh, well, not all, but many of their, they got the newest version of the F-16, the newest version of the Apache, and it looks like they're about to settle on a a deal for some new drones with the United States. So Morocco seems to have the kinds of tools you would would need if you wanted to uh, at least uh, use air power, but they haven't done it yet. So it raises questions as to
0: why not. Right, and how many members roughly does the Polisario Front have? Like, are they big or is it kind of just a small guerrilla force? You
1: know, the camp population is 173,000. If we assume that um, of that, you know, half I don't know are over eighteen. Uh, there's a, certainly a strong willingness uh, among Polisario, um, among the Sahrawi refugees, to fight in the in the war. That they um, they've gotten you know lots of requests uh, to join the military, but the the problem might be, uh, you know, do they have the capacity to absorb all of that? Um, Interest in in joining the fight, and that's the big question. So, figures I've seen suggest uh, maybe you know 10,000 active fighters in Pulsario. That number might be augmented right now with all the, the people who are joining or calling up reserves, things of that sort. But but yeah, we're not talking about a very a very large army.
0: Right, and they're mainly being armed by Algeria. It sounds like right.
1: Yeah, the, the main supporter in terms of arms and, and you know, funding of, of certain activities, international political activities, things like that, um, Algeria. But uh, Polsari is supported by other uh, countries, often when they have an, an embassy, uh, that embassy is supported by the country that agrees, agrees to host them, things of that sort. But yeah, Algeria is the, the, the number one supporter.
0: Right. And uh, is there a big kind of problem then between Morocco and Algeria because of this? Because obviously they're right close to each other. I can't imagine it goes down very well for the Moroccans.
1: Yeah, well, Algeria and Morocco got off on a bad footing when they both uh, became independent. Morocco first in 1956, Algeria in 1962 after a long uh, bloody war with the French. Uh, Morocco immediately tried to invade uh, Algeria to take uh, the town of Tindouf, which Morocco had claimed as a part of this, you know, this vision of a, a grand or greater Morocco that existed before colonialism. Uh, that uh, invasion was countered by an Algerian invasion further north, and the OAU or of African Unity jumped in to mediate uh, between them, and since they both had grabbed territory, they both just gave up what they had grabbed. Uh, but that kind of really got things off, um, kind of I guess set the tone for <laughs> Moroccan Algerian relations, which were very tense uh, during different periods. Uh, particularly because Morocco kind of held out ratifying the border for a long time, you know, using that as to leverage to get things from Algeria. And so uh, when Algeria. Uh, first you know encountered Polisario and Polisario had tried to you know use Algerian territory they initially didn't want to cause problems uh, mainly first with Spain which was Algeria's primary calculus but again when when Morocco gained Western Sahara in 1975 from Spain through this you know um, these sort of backroom deals and you know Henry Kissinger was lurking around and all that kind of stuff that uh, the Algerian government under uh, Boumediene was just uh incensed that the map of North Africa had been redrawn without Algeria's position and Algeria considered itself you know especially in the 70s because you know skyrocketing oil prices Algeria was just becoming a you know very economically military vibrant country uh, and viewed itself as kind of heir to you know Egypt's Nasser as the the next leader of the the Arab world and, and things like that. So Algeria definitely wanted to see that Morocco didn't get Western Sahara didn't get it so easily. Um, and that's when, um, you know, starting in really 1976, uh, this just sort of unbridled support. Uh, Moroccans will often say that uh, the Polisario is nothing more than, you know, kind of uh, fabricated uh, independence movement with no real basis. In From Algeria. So we, yeah, yeah. The Algeria just made the whole thing up um, and uses it to to just, you know, torment Torment Morocco and that sort of thing. So Moroccans also often deny that Western Sahara nationalism has any authentic existence. And that, that's certainly not the case. But it's it's also the case that, you know, a lot of Polisario's success, whether it was like on the battlefield in the 1980s or diplomatically, had a lot to do with this, you know, vigorous support that they were getting from Algeria.
0: Yeah, I mean it's a weird comparison because obviously the you know, Polisario are not as brutal and as ruthless as Turkey and Azerbaijan. But it does sound like that kind of thing between Algeria and the Western Sahara. It's like they're not the same, but they're backing each other up. You know, it's a legitimate group, but it's also kind of, you know, their best pals, basically.
1: Yeah, and it, it's embedded within yeah you know, larger tensions between the two states. Not to say that there isn't, you know, ethnic yearning for for independence and things like that but yeah and then and then the and then you have the even larger layer of sort of like geopolitical interests and things like that that just make it you know i mean for a long time you know we called western Sahara the ultimate frozen conflict you know m- m- you know much like Nagorno Karabakh. you know mm-hmm. and to see them both kind of um have these dramatic changes in, in recent uh weeks and months is quite it's quite shocking
0: yeah um and looking at the Western Sahara, you know, like it's mostly desert and what have you. Why is it that Morocco is so determined that, to kind of hold on to this fight? Why don't they just say, fuck it, have it. Like, we don't care. We're done with this. Why do they, you know, what do they want?
1: Yeah, it's difficult. i uh, say it boils down to a uh, material interest of, of that sort, unless you just mm-hmm. consider land a uh, material interest. Um, you know, a lot of people point to the, the fisheries, which are some of the richest in all of Africa, off the coast of Western Sahara, and the fishing industry under Moroccan control has grown to become you know the most important economic sector um, for the, the Moroccan economy in western Sahara but there's also there's also phosphates and Morocco is already uh, one of the world's number one exporters of phosphates, and the deposits in Western Sahara are incredibly rich and relatively easy to mine. Uh-huh. And it, it just gives Morocco this huge uh, monopoly, like a one country monopoly. You know, the, the Saudi Arabia of phosphates. So, you know, people will say things like that. Um, you know, it's important for uh, food. Uh, you know, industrial agriculture relies heavily upon phosphates, and it's one of the natural resources in the world that we're actually most concerned about in terms of uh, whether or not we've reached uh, peak peak use of phosphates. But I would argue that. Taking Western Sahara in 1975 had more to do with the Moroccan regime was just incredibly unstable at the time. and The king was uh, becoming increasingly unpopular. He barely survived some coup attempts that I mentioned earlier. And so taking Western Sahara, um, I don't think was, you know, there wasn't like an economic, primary economic motivation or or something of that sort. That it had a lot to do with the monarchy trying to figure out what can it do to, you know, rally the nation and, you know, give the military something to do, yeah. uh, things, things of that sort. And uh, it, had, it had an important effect because uh, the Moroccan people were quite impressed that, you know, Hassan appeared to go toe-to-toe with, you know, a Western European country, you know, Spain, mm-hmm. and won, you know. So, uh, in the, you know, and a lot of people even think this is kind of surprising that, you know, even if Spain wasn't yet, uh, you know, a NATO ally, uh, until after the transition to democracy uh but that the u s clearly sided with with Morocco in terms of getting western sahara but you know generally when you look at the world um of armed conflicts, the ones over territory uh tend to be the ones that are the most difficult to resolve precisely because you know you, you know yeah you can you can come up with ways to like you know share the revenue and, and things of that sort but the the attachment to, to pieces of land uh, within the imagination is just is, it's really powerful and I honestly feel that you know Moroccans could probably imagine you know uh, losing the monarchy and you know the world would be okay but <laughs> were they to lose Western Sahara because it, that image of the country as you know a united um, when you look at Moroccan maps of, of Western Sahara and Morocco and that you know that that image can never be changed for them, right? Even if you know they've never been to Western Sahara, they don't feel that they derive any material benefit from it. They're angry because of the subsidies that support all of the settlers there, you know, and that and, and that sort of thing. But they still it's still like the you know losing the monarchy is much more thinkable than losing Western Sahara.
0: Right, right. It's uh, <laughs> it's not just goods then, it's also ego as well, kind of.
1: Yeah. I mean a you know, political ego you can maybe call it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of, like, religion, does that come into any of this at all? Because I know, you know, in that region there has been various different kind of, you know, religion-based disputes. Is that anything to do with this war for Western Sahara?
1: No, I mean, there's concerns that uh, if the situation becomes more and more unstable, then the the actors we've seen in the region, uh, you know, whether aligned with Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State, will, as they did in, in Northern Mali in, in 2012, that they'll kind of jump into the, the vacuum and, and mm. take advantage of the situation. Polisario is not a, um, it's not precisely a, a secular movement, uh, but it's not ex- not exactly one that's, you know, where religion has been front and foremost. And some of this has to do with, with Sahrawi culture, which like a lot of cultures in the Sahara, that uh, the practice of Islam is much more uh, individual Mm. Then it is a group activity. So, in you know Morocco proper in the north, or Algeria, or elsewhere in the Muslim world, uh, you know, going to the mosque on Friday or things like that is is more of a you know that communal aspect to Islam, like that. But when you're a nomad in the desert, you you just pray when when, when you have to pray uh, and things like that. So, uh, only recently have they even uh, begun building mosques in the the refugee camps uh, in Algeria. For the most part, uh, big, big prayer days, like um, whether one of the two big feasts at the end of Ramadan or the end of the Hajj, that, you know, people would pray in a kind of um, outdoors, but that would be the closest thing you'd you'd have to a mosque. Morocco uh, has mobilized religion to a certain extent. Um, The original Moroccan invasion of Western Sahara was called the Green March, which... Uh, drew upon imagery and notions of uh, from the Quran and the great battles of uh, the Prophet Muhammad. Some of the Moroccan you know, missions, or let's say uh, initiatives, uh, during the war in Western Sahara, even used you know names from famous battles in the Quran and things like that. But really, it's it's not. Yeah, we haven't seen um, you know jihadi actors. Uh, involved. though There's always been concerns. Some Spanish aid workers were actually kidnapped out of the, the refugee camps a few years ago. And, you know, the way that they get passed around uh, and then eventually end up in the hands of the the jihadi groups it, it has happened on at least one occasion. But yeah, I mean, one of the things that was often keeping Polisario from resuming armed conflict was that they would be labeled Uh, an Islamic terrorist group or something of that sort. And I think it's an indication of, like, the frustration that they feel that they just, you know, stopped caring about that label and have decided to go to war with, you know, a country that is, you know, uh, that France and the United States consider their most important ally in North Africa.
0: Yeah, it's a big deal to do that. Um, What I can't really get my head around is, like, where is the Polisario Front based? Are they, like in the refugee camps do they hide their weapons there like a conventional guerrilla force or are they more organized than that because from some of the images and footage i've seen they look a little bit more regular than an irregular force if you catch my drift
1: yeah so the the refugee camps are demilitarized to to a certain degree that they don't they try to you know keep the um, you know not, not to hide weapons there or something of that sort um, when the u n arrived in, in nineteen ninety one and the ceasefire was declared, uh, there was you know, Morocco and, and Polsario had to position their troops within um, you know basically easily monitoring you know, monitorable <laughs> in other words, places where the u n mission could you know whether visiting by land or flying overhead by helicopter could count and say, okay, there were five tanks yesterday there there were five tanks today." Uh, and I think when we see uh, Polisario's capacity, we, uh, especially they do these military parades and stuff like that, and it ends up um, in the, the press and you get some images, is, is that conventional capacity that, that Polisario has, that it's, it's gone from Algeria. So you get the, the light tanks and the artillery pieces and, and things of that sort. And that's kind of what you know, the UN mission was keeping its eye on uh, for you know, since 1991, was you know, check, you know, monitoring these various um, positions where Polisario uh, had its um, its weapons, its tanks, and you know its artillery uh, prepositioned. You know, so that like for example, the 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 artillery will be you know symbolically pointed away from the Moroccan wall or <laughs> something of that sort. Uh, and that that was sort of the the thing that happened uh, since 1991 was just that you know Polisario's military, apart from uh, one incident where the military Pulsar did mobilize and almost went back to war in 2000. That other than that, yeah, Pulsar's military has just been uh, out out in the uh, parts of Western Sahara that they control. Um, now they they do have training. They have underground bases that they they've dug into the ground. Things of that sort that take place as well. So there, I think there's I there's some military training that might that might happen in the camp, but uh, as far as P- Pulsarion and its equipment, those are all forward positioned inside Western Sahara itself. So what happens in the refugee camps is you have a lot, a lot of administrative sort of stuff, um, not just like with with aid, but some of the the government functions and things of that sort. So there's a there's an effort to have popular consultation on on lots of different issues. So um, that's the easiest easiest to do inside the refugee camps where people can have local assemblies and, and things like that. Uh, symbolically, they'll, they'll often try to have, you know, big, um, let's say they're every three years, they have a big Congress where uh, new leaders are elected or old leaders are kept in power. And those those will sometimes be held inside what's called the liberated territories inside Western Sahara. But yeah, for the most part, most part like the day-to-day civilian activity of life under Polisario's Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic. That all takes place in the refugee camps. the The military stuff is, you know, hundreds of kilometers away in the the liberated
0: Western Sahara. Right. So they kind of mobilize when they need to, but they're always there, essentially. Yeah. Right. It's weird. It's interesting. It's kind of like semi guerrilla, semi regular. Do you know what I mean? It's quite interesting.
1: The thing is, yeah, you see, Polisario. Um, these military parades and things like that. And it's, they're flashing their conventional uh, capacity. Um, And yet during the seventies and eighties, they were most successful when they, you know, when they weren't using armored personnel carriers and things of that sort, you know, that, um, you know, five guys and a land rover, you know, could, could take the day. But um, yeah, this image of, um, you know, this conventional military is definitely one that they, they present to the world. And so far, that seems to be what they've been using against Morocco, particularly in terms of just the daily bombardment that's going on.
0: Right. Um, And as for the current conflict, the kind of flare-up in the conflict, what is going on? Do you think they're going to kind of come to some kind of peace or they're going to tire each other out? Or do you think it might get worse?
1: Yeah, well, until Morocco really joins the fray, it's it's hard to say that Morocco is, um, you know, whether or not what's happening is... Really affecting them, or or can they take the blows and kind of look like the good guy at least insofar as you know they're not the ones who are you know bombarding the other side on a daily basis, uh, and so then it, there's also a question of, you know, is Algeria willing to continue to supply Polisario with you know, artillery and rockets and things of that sort, or to even supply the kinds of weapons that might make it possible to overcome the ceasefire in some way, um, or not the ceasefire, but they're kind of like the stalemate that, that's been on the ground really since the, the late 1980s in terms of the strategic environment. And I'm not sure Algeria is really in a position to want to do that, uh, but they seem to be quite willing to continue to support Polisario, at least at this sort of limited level. Uh, obviously, this gives uh, the UN a lot to do in terms of trying to get um, both sides to to return to the ceasefire, that being probably the, the primary thing that the UN Secretary General wants right now. Uh, but whether or not Polisario is really willing to listen or is there, you know, what, what could they, you know, be offered uh, that would, you know, be face-saving enough to, to stop the war? Because the pressure on Polisario within the refugee camps to to resume armed struggle uh, has been uh, growing year after year after year. I mean, the first time I went in 2003, this was like almost all you ever heard was, you know, we we should never have give, given up the, the military option. Uh, we're going to have to go back to it soon. Um, and, you know, war war is an inevitable. We, we don't want war. It's inevitable, but this is, you know, this is what we're going to have to do, you know, until so it's like 17 years later, you know, it finally happens. So, yeah, it's it it's a big burden on Polisario to um, figure out, you know, cause what they're, what they're saying at least on paper is that this is a armed struggle to liberate the entire homeland. You know, this isn't, this isn't an armed struggle to resume face-to-face meetings with Morocco, mm-hmm. right? This is, this is the final battle, right? So they've really, really kind of presented this as, you know, um, there's, there's no going back from this point forward, but, you know, unlike, um, you know Hezbollah who you know just made life living hell for the Israelis in southern Lebanon uh I don't know if Polisario can can do the same thing to Morocco because that's really what you know would have to happen is mm. there would just have to be this level of harassment and losses and um and and maybe you know, some imagery you know, would would have to come out because you know we're just we're not seeing these battles you know we're not seeing these you know Moroccan bases i mean maybe you know if we google earth we can see some Um, pockmarks and things like that uh, where artillery's landed but um, it's just you know uh, a war you know it's incredibly invisible right now
0: yeah it is it's really interesting I get it it's far away but at the same time there have been videos that have come out of like youth getting beaten up or youth you know smashing Moroccan police cars and there's also footage of the Polisario front there's that video where one of the guys is kind of firing into the air calling everybody to fight so there's some stuff getting out and you said there that the Polisario front is saying, oh, this is the final battle. Where are they saying this? Like, they have their own propaganda. I mean, what do they have, telegram channels or leaflets? Or, like, how does it work out there?
1: Well, I just stick to the traditional stuff. So they have the Sahrawi Press Service, which is sort of like their, um, their state-run uh, outlets. They have their own television that they run and, and things, things of that sort um, various actors in Polisario are active on Twitter, like their UN representative who, you know, tweets out in four different languages and things like that. Uh, the the declaration that came out when armed struggle was resumed, that's the one I'm referring to uh, from the Polisario president who said this is you know the final struggle for the homeland. Uh, so yeah, the the stuff that we do see is often comes from the parts of Western Sahara that are under Moroccan control, um, which again they are, are very removed from the the front uh, where the fighting is actually taking place. Is, even in the 70s and 80s, the war for Western Sahara was an incredibly uh, relatively clean war in terms of, uh, you know, civilian, uh, civilian losses were almost unheard of unless, you know, we're talking about human rights abuses or the hundreds of Sahrawis that Morocco, you know, disappeared and still remain unaccounted for. But yeah, with the growth of social media and cell phone cameras and things like that, the the day-to-day sort of harassment and beatings and, you know, suppression of freedom of assembly inside the Moroccan occupied Western Sahara, like that's, that comes out all the time now. Uh, whereas, you know, 20 years ago, we just, we'd, we'd hear about it, but we'd never be able to see it because the, um, the Moroccan occupation is just one of the most, um, Tightly controlled police states, one one can imagine, but uh, do yeah. Some brave activists have definitely helped uh, bring attention to what's happening in the areas under Moroccan occupation, and yeah, we get some leakage from the Polisario side, like what you're mentioning with the um, rocket fire or the uh, the guy shooting in the air or uh, images of you know dozens of Sahrawis lining up to you know volunteer for the army.
0: Right. Um, and what have the Moroccans been saying about this? Have they said anything in their press? No, relatively uh,
1: very silent, um, almost as if it, it didn't happen. So, um, or it's not happening um, in that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, right, there's this effort to keep Moroccan military families quiet uh, in terms of what's going on. Uh, Moroccans, I think, are generally kind of um you know, one, one of the huge problems is just the, the way that the government controls the narrative. Uh, it's very difficult for Moroccans to have an independent uh, opinion on the topic that, you know, the few brave Moroccan journalists who do attempt to sort of look into things objectively or neutrally are often uh, very much maltreated. There was a Moroccan journalist who went to the refugee camps, and he came back and he challenged the government's notion that these were concentration camps. He was like, no, you know, these are just normal refugee camps. Uh, and, you know, I walked around, I talked to people and, you know, I saw the truth. And then, you know, and then of course he's uh, now living in exile. The, you know, a decade ago we had a few good Moroccan weekly magazines, but they often uh, faced immense uh, pressure from the government or advertisers if they ever questioned what was going on in Western Sahara. So, yeah, the Moroccan government is being very very tight tight-lipped about this. And they, they generally tend to be when it, when it comes to Western Sahara and things of that sort. And the Moroccan government's also, you know, denying that that there was any quid pro quo with the recognition of Israel and Trump's recognition of uh, Western Sahara that these are two independent <laughs> sort of agreements or something of that sort. Uh, just, you know, because Morocco is now is, you know, facing a lot of fury from its own Islamist movement which um politically the the islamist party is one of the most one of the most powerful ones but in terms of actual like social movements like the moroccan islamist movement is much larger and much more powerful than people give it credit for but um often that's uh because it's heavily uh, surveilled and repressed by the the moroccan state
0: right press freedom is not exactly high in their priority as far as i'm aware in morocco yeah, especially not in Western
1: Sahara. I right. mean, you, know, you just go to Reporters about Borders and you see the litany of um, abuses that happen inside Western Sahara.
0: Okay. Um, is there anything else you think we should mention about this situation, mate? It's a very interesting uh, kind of frozen and now, you know, hot conflict again. Uh, I don't want to miss anything. So is there anything else you think we should mention?
1: Well, it'll be interesting that, you know, Trump has inadvertently forced a lot of countries to take sides on the issue or at least to clarify. Where they stood. So if they they didn't feel comfortable saying that, <laughs> the 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 unfortunate truth that Morocco uh, does not have sovereignty over Western Sahara. Now that now they're having to come out and say that. So that can actually have an interesting uh, effect on things um, because it it raises the visibility of the issue, um, and that's always been a huge challenge. Is just that you know. the... Um, it's just on because of you know whether it was because of the peace or that you know whatever abuses were happening inside the territory never amounted to uh, anything that could compare to what else is going on in the world. That editors and producers just never really seemed interested in the issue. So um, it will be interesting if uh, a new dynamic can be kind of catalyzed where people start to take interest in the issue. You know why is why is Trump selling out a piece of the desert? You know for uh, Israel, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so that can build new connections and things of, things of that sort. Um, on the ground, the thing that i would most curious to see is if Pulsario uh, is able and willing to escalate, uh, like I said, to uh, uh, up the, the pain threshold, because it seems as if Morocco has so far weathered this pretty well. Um, again, only two Uh, casualties but that might be uh, off by several orders of magnitude uh, depending on how closely they're they're guarding the secret Uh, but yeah i would be i would be looking for uh, some kind of military escalation on the ground because that's probably the only thing that will generate uh, enough diplomatic pressure to get the security council to take the issue seriously
0: yeah, it's uh, it's very interesting that Trump has just done this all of a sudden with the with the Israel situation. Um, I guess we'll wait and see what happens, but yeah, uh, he's really trying to like kick off everything from the table on his way out. I think, but anyway, that's Trump. I guess. <laughs> um, is there is yeah. there anything uh, is is there anywhere people can find your work and follow you and all of that? Make sure they keep up to date with all this.
1: Yeah, I'm uh, I'm on Twitter, uh, Monday Prof um and uh hopefully through me you can find a lot of uh Sahrawis. uh i try to retweet, uh support their voices things like that um yeah um otherwise i'm just sort of um uh, i guess that's sort of i guess where i aggregate like a lot of the stuff i produce
0: okay mate thank you very much for that really appreciate it oh thank you cheers man uh, and that's mundy like m-u-n-d-y-p-r-o-f right yeah okay mate thank you very much yeah no problem That was Professor Jacob Mundi speaking about the reignited conflict in the Western Sahara between the Polisario Front and the Moroccan government. If you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please do consider supporting us at patreon.com slash popularfront. You get bonus episodes, access to the community, Discord, narrated articles, discount on merchandise, all sorts. Patreon.com slash popularfront. We do have a new t-shirt out on the shop. Uh, Go to popularfront.shop if you want to see that. It's called the Deeply Concerned T-Shirt. We're kind of taking the piss out of the UN with it. The UN does a lot of great work, but at the same time, the UN does often nothing uh, to stop its members committing war crimes and engaging in corruption. Most recently, uh, a good example of that would be how the UN does nothing to stop Turkey doing what it's doing, and also how UNESCO has been taking bribes from Azerbaijan to kind of keep it quiet when Azerbaijan destroys Armenian um, structures and heritage sites. This was all proven in a in a recent document, and you know, UN has done nothing. The people are going to get away with it. Nothing's going to happen. So you know, I think it's only fair that we can kind of take a take the piss out of them sometimes. Um, so yeah, go to popularfront.shop and check out the uh, the UN is deeply concerned t-shirt. I think you'll like it this episode is sponsored as always by oracle coffee shop in portland oregon usa shout out to frank uh, they're an independent coffee shop selling only fair trade products see them at 3875 southwest bond avenue 97239 check them out ask um tell them popular front Center. you might get a discount i don't know The episode is also sponsored by Grindcore House, a pair of independent coffee shops in Philadelphia, USA, one in South, one in West. Check them out on social media at Grindcore House. The episode is also sponsored by Propagandopolis, an outlet selling and informing people about historical conflict propaganda throughout the ages. Get prints at propagandopolis.com and use the code POPULARFRONT10 to get 10% off watch our documentaries look us up on youtube youtube.com slash popular front our website with everything on there is www.popularfront.co our instagram is instagram.com slash popular.front we have the most horrific toxic comment section on the whole of instagram i reckon um yeah check us out if you want to update some conflict but also maybe ignore the comments or if you're sort of person who has time um, argue with the people in the comments it's all up to you um, we're also on twitter twitter.com slash popular front co and then if you're looking for me on social media you want to tell me to go fuck myself or whatever it is uh, it's always at jake underscore hanrahan h-a-n r-a-h-a-n Music in this episode the intro was by Home and the outro was by Sam Black. Listen to Sam's music at samblackpf.com. As I said at the start, um, thank you very much to the Patreons, uh, specifically the higher tier. Those people are Bethany, uh Keta Memes and Sexual Themes, okay, Tina. Damien Boyd, Larson8669, Badnads, Bjorn Kirsten, Diamond Steen, Jacob, Michael O'Connor, Zach Packard, Todd Cravens, Will Anderson, Alexander, Nicholas Butter, Ron Swanson, JD, Jav, Ian Froese, James Cully, Michael Akakan, Ethan Reyes, I don't know Sorry about that Tell me if I said it wrong Fitz Madrid Joe Watt Alex Northrup Ed Coulthard Johnny LaFleur Hugo Newski, Mike Barone Scott Hopton Liam Williams Chris Cusimano Degenerate Zero Alpha Jojo Arani The R, Trey Nance Charlie Amy R Rubicon Mink Frank Austin Melia Mee Noazi Christina Rivetti Freya Northman Ali Hunter Moody al Rashid, Bill Wilson Andrew Hurley Vida Provost Brian McLaughlin Tom Lochran, Young Wasabi Surushe Hawazi Tony Bin Adam Berg-Snyder Sebastian from the Discord Stephen Davila Anthony Kabarek, Patrick Bronte Dan Donham Fletcher Tate Chad Walker Diana Govinek, Kubol, Lawrence Abrahams Peter McCormick from What Bitcoin Did Emily Molly Axel Iverson Christopher Martin Ryan Sandercock Maurice Zumbul and k hardy roberts thank you all so much really appreciate the support without you uh, popular front would collapse frankly so thank you very much again if you like what we're doing please do consider supporting us go to patreon.com slash popular front or if you don't like patreon go to www.popularfront.co support and there's many different ways you can support us there donations bitcoin all sorts check us out